Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Later in the programme, things will be taking a nautical turn when I return to an interview from 2009 with Britain David Watts, who was on a visit to Hong Kong. He was in the British Royal Navy for 31 years in this region and then later became the general manager of the China Fleet Club. But first, next month on February the 21st, it will be 50 years since President Richard Nixon landed in Shanghai and headed on to Beijing to meet Premier Zhou Enlai and Chairman Mao Zedong in a groundbreaking visit that would result in the building of relations between China and the United States after decades of diplomatic isolation. China analyst and author Mark O'Neill talks to me about this momentous visit, the build-up to it and what it meant for both countries to Burbank to make his address in the NBC studio there, uh, 50 miles from the uh, summer White House. He was accompanied by his foreign policy advisor, Henry Kissinger, just back from a global trip uh, pursuing information about the latest Viet Cong peace proposal, and by John Scali, also a foreign policy advisor. The president's uh, address is expected to be brief, perhaps uh, less than 10 minutes. Now, Mr. Nixon. Good evening. I have requested this television time tonight to announce a major development in our efforts to build a lasting peace in the world. As I have pointed out on a number of occasions over the past three years, there can be no stable and enduring peace without the participation of the People's Republic of China and its 750 million people. That is why I have undertaken initiatives in several areas to open the door for more normal relations between our two countries. In pursuance of that goal, I sent Dr. Kissinger, my assistant for national security affairs, to Peking during his recent world tour for the purpose of having talks with Premier Cho Enlai. The announcement I shall now read is being issued simultaneously in Peking and in the United States. Premier Cho Enlai and Dr. Henry Kissinger, President Nixon's Assistant for National Security Affairs, held talks in Peking from July 9 to 11, 1971. Knowing of President Nixon's expressed desire to visit the People's Republic of China, Premier Cho Enlai, on behalf of the government of the People's Republic of China, has extended an invitation to President Nixon to visit China at an appropriate date before May 1972. President Nixon has accepted the invitation with pleasure. The meeting between the leaders of China and the United States is to seek the normalization of relations between the two countries and also to exchange views on questions of concern to the two sides. Well, the primary mover was China, because when the PRC was set up, the Soviet Union was its closest ally, and it sent 1,400 uh, advisors, and there were hundreds of very important technical projects, industrial projects set up in China. But then the two countries split over the question of ideology. 1960, the, the Soviet advisors withdrew. In 1969, 1970, there were armed clashes on the Usuri River 
in the north of China between Chinese and Soviet troops. And Mao felt increasingly isolated. And remember, the Soviet Union controlled Eastern Europe and the Communist bloc. So China had very few friends in the world. So it was China that made the first overtures. We date these from January 1970. And at that time, Chinese and American diplomats met in Warsaw. And it was at that meeting that the Chinese said they'd like to have a higher level meeting. And then in October that year, Edgar Snow was invited to Beijing for the anniversary of the PRC celebrations, and he stood next to Chairman Mao. Edgar Snow? Uh, well, he was the author of Red Star Over China. He, he wrote this pioneering book about Mao Zedong and the communists, and he was a very good friend of China. So Mao invited him to attend the celebrations as a signal to America that I want to open relations with you. The next step came in April 1971 when the U.S. ping pong team was in Japan for a competition and China invited the team to come to China and play friendship competition. And they were the first Americans to enter China since uh, 1949. So it was in July 1971 that Henry Kissinger, who was the national security advisor at that time, made the first of two visits to China. He met Zhou Enlai, the prime minister, and they planned the visit by Nixon at which he would meet Chairman Mao. So it was China the driver, but the U.S. side was also happy to go ahead because it saw a way to drive a wedge between China and the Soviet Union. You know, you're the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That was the thinking of President Nixon. Dr. Henry Kissinger had already made a couple of visits, I think, to Beijing by the time that uh, Nixon and his wife would go as, you know, part of the presidential group. Oh, yes. Kissinger's visits were to work out exactly when Nixon would go, whom he would meet, what they would talk about and what would be the content of a joint communique. I mean, you couldn't have such a momentous visit without a significant outcome. So a lot of preparatory work needed to be done, and uh, Kissinger and the staff around him, plus, of course, Joe and Lai and the staff around him, they were the ones that did all this work. In the 1930s on to the 1940s, America had always been an ally of the nationalists. They continued to be an ally of the nationalist government and they never recognised communist China as of 1949. So when do they start to formally recognise China and was it the, the Nixon visit that engineered that? Yeah, I mean, the Nixon visit broke the ice. But the U.S. ties with Taiwan were very, very strong. So in the joint communique that was issued during Nixon's visit, the Taiwan issue was set to one side. The U.S. said it would gradually withdraw its military forces and installations from Taiwan, and the two sides would work toward normalization. But it didn't make any concrete commitment to recognize the PRC and drop the Republic of China on Taiwan. But remember, in October 1971, the UN General Assembly had voted 59 to 55 to remove Taiwan from the UN and replace it with the PRC. So obviously, there were many countries in the world by this stage who were recognizing the PRC rather than recognizing Taiwan. When the Nixons went to Beijing, what kind of activities did they undertake? Well, it was very interesting, and they arrived, it was the morning of February the 21st, uh, they arrived at Beijing Airport, and the American delegation was expecting 
a, a sort of communist star welcome. You know, tens of thousands of people on both sides of the street, you know, people with uh, U.S. and Chinese flags, you know, uh, uh, singing and so forth. But there was none of that. It was very, very low-key. They were just met uh, by Joan Lai at the airport and taken in cars into the city. And, of course, there was no red lights and it was all straight. But there was no crowds on either side, and they were a little bit puzzled as to why that is. And we don't really know the reason, except perhaps that within the Communist Party itself, of course, many people were strongly anti-American. I mean, the, the Gang of Four and their supporters were strongly anti-American. So perhaps Mao thought it was better to play it low-key in the beginning, have his meeting with Nixon, and then there was 10 minutes of that on national television that evening, and then that's the fait accompli, and then proceed. So he only met Nixon once, and the meeting only lasted one hour, and probably the reason was that Mao himself was in very bad health. He'd been in hospital for several weeks until just nine days before the meeting. So this was the key symbolic meeting, you know, between the most important man in China and the most important man in the United States. But the work was done by Zhou Enlai and his staff. Zhou met uh, Nixon several times and they had detailed talks. And then, of course, the people under them worked on all the details of the communique. And what was achieved, do you think? I mean, you know, Nixon is an interesting presidency. Everybody remembers 1974 and Watergate, which, uh, you know, ended his presidency. But do you feel that he ought to also be recognised for this move in 1972? Oh, very much so. I, I would say it's his greatest achievement in office. And it was only possible because he was such an ardent anti-communist. So nobody could accuse him of being soft on communism. It was much easier for him to go to China than it would have been for a democratic president. And Mao told him at the meeting, I voted for you in the election, exactly for that reason. So, yes, you needed someone like Nixon, of course, advised by Kissinger, who saw the big global strategy, saw the, the, the new world that was emerging with three powers instead of two. And the, the strategic vision came from Kissinger. And the advice came from Kissinger. But Nixon himself had to make the decision whether to come. And, of course, within his party, there were a lot of critics. Barry Goldwater, for example, was a very strong critic. But, no, he pulled it off. And he called it the week that changed the world. Well, politicians always exaggerate. But <laughs> I think in this case, he was right. Henry Kissinger still is with us, isn't he? Well, that's also very fascinating because Kissinger always believed that the U.S. needed to be friends with China. And, you know, there are no friends in politics, only interests. So that's been Kissinger's position all along, and it's still his position today. But the consensus, of course, in Washington now is very much anti-China. Both the Democrats and the Republicans are very strongly anti-China. So I think we can say that Mr. Kissinger is the best friend of China in the United States, especially among the establishment. Now, it's 50 years ago since this move to ensure ties with China was, was undertaken. And it's interesting just to think of, of that world at that time. I mean, the, the Vietnam War was still going on. And so do you feel that when we look also that China then becomes this enormous world manufacturing base, how fast would that follow on from Kissinger? And do you think that there were any early discussions at that time of that sort of thing? Oh, yes, because one of the drivers on the Chinese side was that, uh, for example, the Chinese petroleum industry realized how backward it was 
and it needed a lot of new technology to improve its workings and, and increase the production. And they decided that the U.S. had the most advanced technology in this field. So they very much wanted to have access to U.S. technology. And do you remember, during the Korean War, the U.S. imposed a trade embargo on China. So this continued throughout the 50s and the 60s, and it ended in 1971. So this is also part of the, of the normalization. So th it then became possible for the first time to have trade and commerce and exchanges between the two sides. And China today is this global economic power, and it's the joint effort of many people. And, of course, U.S. capital technology management has played a very important role in that. So, uh, yes, th this visit was vital to start links in many fields, including in industry, commerce and trade. Now, we've got uh, still the sort of Nixon library in the US. Did uh, Richard Nixon actually comment privately in diaries about this visit? Well, as you mentioned, he, he won the election in 1972, but later he had to resign because of Watergate. And I think I'm right in saying he's the only US president who has resigned in office. So this was a very shameful legacy for him. So, looking back on his career, he believed that his foreign policy initiatives were the best thing he did. So, he regarded this visit to China as one of the most important, perhaps the most important thing he did while he was in office. And China? Uh, yes, uh, China remembers Nixon with great fondness because an American president uh, who made the move he did had to be very brave. It was a dangerous move because of the very strong anti-Chinese sentiment in America then. So China is very grateful to, to Nixon for making this decision and opening the door. That was the, the key thing. Someone had to open the door. Once the door was open, then people could move through the door in both directions. Someone first had to come and open the door. And, of course, he met Mao. He met Mao, the founder of the PRC. So that, that, that's also a very profound thing to do. Yes, Nixon is well remembered in China. Now, it was interesting to sort of look at this footage of the arrival at uh, the airport because uh, Mrs. Nixon is wearing just a, a bright red outfit, you know, a bright mm -hmm. red coat. And it, it's interesting also because this, when you think about any state visit and the prep that goes into it, and uh, I wonder what the discussions were before about how to behave and uh, all the discussions about what would go on during these few days. Well, I think everything was scripted minutely. For example, the Nixons brought porcelain swan statue, very rare item which had been specially made. And Mao gave the Nixons 200 kilograms of Dahong Bao tea, black tea, which is grown in Fujian province. It's the most expensive tea in the world, and it's worth more than gold at that time. So he gave Nixon the most expensive item of tea is the Chinese product, you know, the most expensive of its kind. So all these things are very carefully worked out. And of course, neither side knew very well the right thing to do because they had had no interaction for so long. So um, a great deal of preparation and research went into these details. What happens to that tea? Does it go into some sort of like state visit presents or, or gifts sort of vault, do you think, at the White House? Or do you think everybody was just drinking tea? Well, those of us who've been to Pyongyang, of course, <laughs> have all been to this enormous museum 
where are kept the gifts made by the leaders around the world to Kim Il-sung. So the swans you can see at a major museum in Beijing, they've survived well. But I don't think <laughs> Da Kung Pao tea could survive for so many decades. <laughs> so my guess would be, yes, you're right. Maybe when they got to America, they shared it out among the delegation, and they all proudly showed it off to their wives, <laughs> girlfriends and husbands. <laughs> <laughs> and sat down and, the, and had a nice cup of tea. But I, I think what I'll take away from this interview, Mark, is those of us who've been to Pyongyang, which I would say is quite a select few... Well, when, when I was there, I watched the TV news every night, and every night there was an item. <laughs> you know, the ambassador of Mauritania gave a, a food item to Kim Il-sung, which would be put in this museum. Now, maybe these were old footage, and it was being repeated. <laughs> Interesting. It, it was all made to show that Kim Il-sung was famous all over the world and received gifts from everyone. Fifty years on, how should the Nixon visit, do you think, be viewed? Well, he was right. It did change the world. It opened the door between not only the U.S. and China, but the Western China, because the next year, Japan went to China. Tanaka, Prime Minister, met Mao, and the two countries normalized. Well, Japan would never have done this by itself. So they went. And then, of course, the other countries in the Western world could do the same thing. So it really opened the door between China and the Western world, including the U.S. allies in Asia. China analyst and author Mark O'Neill giving me an overview there of the visit by President Richard Nixon to China in February 1972, when he would meet both Premier Zhou Enlai and Chairman Mao 50 years ago. David Watts first came to Hong Kong as a 22-year-old able seaman in the British Royal Navy. After a 31-year career, he would later become the general manager of the China Fleet Club, which was a private club set up to serve naval staff who were aboard ships in the South China Sea. I interviewed David Watts when he visited Hong Kong in 2009. I came for the first time through the gap at Liu Moon on board HMS Plymouth in 1963. And uh, what kind of role within the Navy did you play at that point? Oh, I was a skinny little able seaman then. <laughs> With blue eyes and blonde hair. <laughs> and when you first came to Hong Kong, so that would have been the mid-1960s, what were your first impressions? Well, well, that was 1963, so, so it was quite early in the 60s. My first impressions were, and I, I've still got them qu quite clearly, that the, here was a wonderful place to be. The hills around the entrance, what, the Lai Moon and Chai Wan and, and all that area there were absolutely filled with people who'd escaped or defected or whatever term you want to use from the problems in China itself. So, I, you know, I saw it really at, at, at its rawest and uh, that, that image has never left me. That said, it was and still is among the most vibrant places I've ever been to in my life and I've been to a few places. Now then, when you first came, you know, to, uh, aboard the HMS Plymouth, arrived in Tamar, at that time as a naval base, what would it have looked like? You know, incredibly busy place? Yeah, uh, the China fleet at, at that time and, and in those years was quite a quite a large uh, number of ships and included a couple of carriers aircraft carriers I mean only one normally but one went turning round and stuff one relieving the other would would 
you know, produced two over certain periods of time. In general, there were five or six large cruisers, some destroyers of similar number, certainly frigates, there were quite a number of those because I was on one, and and also minesweepers, patrol craft, quite, quite, a, quite a large number of them. So, yes, it was a pretty busy grey messenger of death <laughs> That's one way of looking at it. The Royal Navy would have been part of the, the sort of British government machine that arrived in Hong Kong at the beginning of the 1840s. Now, your involvement, you came with the Royal Navy in 1963 as a young, able seaman, and uh, you've described to me what Tamar would have been like at that time. Were there any facilities for you? I mean, once you arrived, was there any kind of clubs that you could go to? Well, there were several, actually, but the one that was the most popular was easily the China Fleet Club. When was the China Fleet Club first set up? Well, that goes back, the origins of the China Fleet Club, it wasn't called that then, but the origins go back right to the beginning of, of, the, of the 1840s when, when there was a canteen established for social activities. Over the 50 or 60 years following that period, it had several sites one on Hennessy Road and, and Queens Road East and Arsenal Street and so on and so forth. Uh, but in 1934, the club opened on the site of the corner of Gloucester Road and Arsenal Street, and, and that was the, the origins of the China Fleet Club. Why was it called the China Fleet Club? Because the fleet out here was called the China Fleet. So this would have been Hong Kong, and then where else would you have gone within the China region? All over the South China Sea. In front of us, we've got a book on the history of the China Fleet Club, and on the front is a photograph of the China Fleet Club, the, the actual building on the corner of Gloucester Road, the one that was built in 1934 and was obviously the main China Fleet Club of the Royal Navy. And uh, on top is an advert for San Miguel written in Chinese with a San Miguel bottle and glass, and, and above it is steady on San Miguel. Now, what does that represent? Yes, good question, because only the inside uh, people, or people with inside knowledge would know that. Every warship that came to Hong Kong came through Lai Moon Gap, and as such, they, uh, they had to be facing the right way to leave if they needed to leave in a hurry. So they needed to do a, a, a complete sort of 180-degree turn before they could come alongside HMS Tamar. And as you complete that turn, of course, there would be a, a, a large number of wheel instructions to the, to the coxswain from the officer of the day or the captain, whoever was driving the ship. And among them would be instructions, for example, you know, starboard 10, east of 5, half ahead, main, starboard, you know, and all that sort of stuff. And when the ship was settled and about to come alongside, it's a legend, but it sounds right uh, the order was given steady on San Miguel so the, the final wheel order if you like from the bridge to the, the coxswain on the wheel was steady on San Miguel and otherwise you can see San, the, the San Miguel sign all we've got to do now is bring it alongside and, 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 and that will be it so, so that's the, the history if you like of the term steady on San Miguel I'm talking to Britain David Watts, who is a former general manager of the China Fleet Club and also formerly had a career also in the Royal Navy. He first came to Hong Kong in 1963 as an able seaman aboard the HMS Plymouth. Now, when you were here in the 1960s, I mean, the 60s would have been 
perhaps the most vibrant time in Hong Kong in that field? Well, it was vibrant in, in so many ways and for so many reasons. I mean, for example, the late 60s brought us the Vietnam War. And so thousands and thousands of military personnel from around the world, and in particular America, came to Hong Kong for rest and recuperation, to refuel, to restore, to, to do whatever they needed to do to uh, uh, carry out that um, conflict. Now, as a young, able seaman, you were 22 in 1963. Now, when you used to come alongside uh, Tamar, and I recently wrote an, an obituary on this lady uh, for the South China Morning Post, but you, you would meet up with Jenny and her side party. What were the side parties in Hong Kong? Well, they were what it sounds like, actually. They, they painted the ship sides. They operated off uh, sort of pontoon things, and they brought them alongside with their great long rollers, or rattan as I understand it, or bamboo or something, and they rolled paint up and down the ship's side. But it also included the chipping of the paint, so they had to get the paint, the rusty paint off, and then some what we called admar, undercoat, uh, which was anti-rusting, and, and then undercoat, and then a couple of top coats. So they were, quite, they were quite busy, as you can probably imagine, with all the ships out there at that time. So they, they were quite busy, and they were all ladies. Yeah, so Jenny died in her early 90s this year, or even in her mid-90s. Nobody's quite sure about her birth date. Mm. And uh, so she would be, and, and she was pretty much born and grew up on a sandpan. Mm. And uh, these other ladies she'd bring alongside. There was Jenny in her side party. There was also... Susie and a side party and, and some others and they used to either do the American boats or do the British boats but a lot of the British knew Jenny and can you tell me what she was like? She never stopped smiling you know she there was this wonderful rapport that she had with the ship's company in general but but the the fellow workers in particular the, the naval people that is the, the the people who worked on the upper deck and stuff like this so so there was always a great deal of bonhomie uh, between her her girls and the ship's companies. And I've got photographs of her with three ships that I was on when I came out here. And she sits for the ship's company photograph on the jetty. She sits with the captain. Now, after your career in the Royal Navy in the 1980s, you actually took over as China Fleet Club manager. I mean, what sort of facilities, what sort of social events did you organise? In the 80s? We saw an awful lot of the entertainment side of life because it was something I was particularly interested in and keen on and we saw quite a large number of famous people come to the club. Uh, not least of all was Billy Connolly. We had Marmalade here, we had Cannon and Ball, all the popular big-time comedian show people. Mike Reed, I don't know if you remember him, from yes. the comedians. So, yeah, so British comedian Mike Reed British and then comedian, Scottish yeah. comedian Billy Connolly yeah, and then yeah. Cannon yeah. and Ball, they're a comedian act as well. Yes, they are, yeah. You know, it was my intention that, that we should bring these people, you know, benefit not just the Royal Navy but the military in general that were stationed in Hong Kong at that time and there were a large number of us. Now, I don't see any tattoos on your arm as a, to uh, represent your naval career, but what's the one on your chest? <laughs> you, you really want to see that? Oh, dear. Well, that's, that's a, a rose. My, my first wife's name underneath. <laughs> and believe it or not, I had that done here in Hong Kong in 1963. So you had, to, you had it done. Uh, we, won't, we won't perhaps mention the name that's, no, no, that's no, there no, anymore. Um, but I had it done here. 
And, yeah. and do you bit what? So a tattoo parlour in Wenchai? Yeah, there's one in Arsenal Street. I think it's moved around the corner now, but because I think I caught a glimpse of it the other day. It's called Pinkies, Pinkies Tattoo Parlour, and I believe it's there's something still there. Yeah, so I had that done there, so that was 45 years ago. <laughs> but at that time, um, and certainly all through the 50s, late 50s, certainly when I was, you know, just joined up, there used to be a song called A Sailor Ain't a Sailor Until He's Had a Tattoo. <laughs> so everybody that was in the Navy at that time, I'm quite sure, was influenced by that song because people who didn't have a tattoo were, you know, abused. Tattooed? Tattooed. A sailor's not a sailor till a sailor's been tattooed. Here's an anchor from a tanker that I sailed upon when first I went to sea. Here's another of my mind. David Watts there, a Royal Navy man who was also the general manager of the China Fleet Club. My thanks also to China analyst and author Mark O'Neill. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.